Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. My name is George. I'm one of the, the pastors here at the Mount. Um, we're going to be looking at Nahum 3, 1 through 19 this morning. So if you want to turn there, it'll probably be up behind me. It is. Nahum writes, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle, and all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains, you also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay Tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like that locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Will you pray with me? Father, would you speak this morning? 
God, may we give ourselves to you completely and totally. Would our lives demonstrate who you are to one another, to a watching world? Would we proclaim the gospel with every breath, not holding a truce with this world, but offering them you? In Jesus' name, amen. So what would you give for God to tell you exactly how to face evil and sin in this world? A handwritten sticky note put up there, encouragement from on high, um, an app to help you read the times, maybe a map allowing you to walk through the minefield of life. If so, then you can kind of understand Judah's position. They're oppressed. They're unsure where to turn to. They're wondering if a policy of appeasement with Assyria, with evil, might be in order. And so for all those who struggle like Judah, he gives his word through Nahum. And so today we're going to finish up that book. Um, and as the oracle winds up, we're taken um, through the shaming of Nineveh. Not just its judgment, but its shaming. We're taken through the downfall of Assyria and then ultimately to the ruin of its king. And so we're going to jump right in. Um, our first topic as we, as we see it, you can see on your bulletin, is, is a woe um, that's lifted up over Nineveh, um, over that bloody city. And what we see here is that that word woe, there's two different possibilities. You have woe that is um, kind of the opposite of blessed. You know, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And woe could be the opposite of that, um, the not blessed. But here, it's more of a moan. It's a grief. There's no one to, to rescue Nineveh. It's doomed because God is standing against it. And so we look at God versus the city um, in this first part of the passage. We have to ask ourselves, what is a city? And we could probably come up with a lot of different definitions for what a city is, um, some of them based on their identity. We're going to look at one that's really based on its function. What does a city do? And as we look at that, it's really one of culture amplification, culture export. A city, you gather a ton of people, and as they live, as they learn from one another, they share, they grow, they play off of one another. And what you have is this building, this amplification of what they find valuable, of what they find good, of what they find powerful, of who they think they should be, what are their ideals and their values. So that's that culture amplification. Um, but then it goes out, right? The city doesn't, isn't content to just have that culture to itself. It wants to then let you know that culture. And so as we think of a city, we think of this going out, this sending forward. And so we have to ask, you know, are, are we consumers of what the city sells? Are we consumers of what the culture around us is putting before us? Or are we presenting a culture of the kingdom? Are we presenting a culture of Christ himself? Nothing's wrong with cities. 
So we don't want to necessarily say city's bad. Um, from the very beginning of the Bible, we have Eden pictured as really the temple garden of God's city. And of course, at the end of the book, the other side, you have Revelation 21, you have the holy city, Jerusalem, you have Zion coming down from heaven, itself radiant with the glory of God because the Lord is in its midst. So it's not cities are bad, but the thing is, culture is not without sin. And in the same way that we export and amplify culture through cities, we amplify and export sin. And that's exactly what Assyria has done. So those individual sins that we all engage in, envy, strife, pride, greed, sexual sin, we do those individually, they affect the next person. That next person responds with anger, with hatred, with murder, with their own greed, with their own envy, and it just spirals. It amplifies, it exports. We look up new ways, novelized ways of sinning to try to overcome what we see around us. And so we have examples of those as well. Scripture is continually showing us pictures of these cities um, whose sin is being exported. It's being sent out into the world and it's trying to dominate our attention. And so we can return right back to Eden. What are its sins? It, it was disobedience, rebellion, wanting to be the, tr be the choice maker, be God. Or we can look at Babel. Their sin, disobedience, seeking a life that was independent from God. God had given something called the, the cultural mandate, this idea of go forth, multiply, be a people who will represent me. And they said, no, we're going to build a city to our own glory, and that'll be enough. That's where our peace and security will be found. Or you have a city like Sodom and Gomorrah, where you have inhospitable behavior. You have a, a culture that is just outright rejecting God, and even to the point of sexual immorality. Um, you have the picture in Isaiah of Tyre. Tyre is the city that thinks itself unassailable. It's a seaside city that does all this commerce. And, and God says, your pride of place, your sin of pride will bring you down. Such to the point that Tyre becomes like an a, a image even for Satan himself whose pride lifted him up to think that he could overcome God. And then we have Jerusalem. Even in Jesus' day, hypocrisy. Lack of love, calling good evil, even killing an innocent man. And so you see these cities repeatedly pushing their sin out into the world. Be like us. This is who we can be. This is what will give us security and peace. And for Nahum, he offers the example of Nineveh. Nineveh isn't just judged because they're not nice. They're judged for sin. That's what Nahum wants us to see. He says, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Their first sin is carnage and absolute cruelty. They're a bloody city. Their whole, their whole being, their whole purpose in life 
is to make life miserable for others because it will prove that they're the most powerful. They live by carnage and cruelty. And on top of that, they live by lying and deceit. They're an empire built on, if I trounce, if I totally destroy this city, this nation, the next nation will fear me. It's not how can I lead well. It's not how can I care for and actually take care of my people. It's how can I dominate the next thing? How can I dominate the next city? How can I spare myself my own blood by taking blood from others right from the start? And so they promise things. Oh, yeah, we'll take care of you. They, they promise Jerusalem, you know what? You'll, you'll get to do exactly what you're doing. Just submit to us, and then we're going to take you to a better place where you can continue to be happy. Don't worry, we've got your best interests at heart. All the while, Judah can look at Samaria and Israel, crushed, exported, gone, no longer a people. Ultimately, Assyria, Nineveh, their sin is plundering and victimization. They don't care about the people they're conquering. It's about their glory, their wealth, their power. It's all fueled by a sense of idolatry, of we're, we have our gods behind us, our gods giving us the authority to do this, and you will not be able to stand against us. In verse 4, um, he mentions specifically, Nahum does, sorcery and charm. There's this sense in which Nineveh has been able to capture the attention um, of the nations. They claim it's their, it's their sorcery, it's their divination, it's all these mystical things around their religious worship that have enthralled the nations. So they think they're, they've got it all because they have charmed the nations into submitting to them when they're ultimately betrayers. They're not going to live up to their obligations to these people that they've conquered. Ultimately, we see in verse 7, by the lack of comforters, that ultimately their sin is one of just oppression. They, they think that they're all that. They think that they're in charge and that no one can judge them. And so punishment for Nineveh's great sin comes in verses 5 through 7. I'm just going to read that again. He says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle, and all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? And maybe one of the first things we need to really deal with as we come here is that our culture wants to think that if punishment comes, it should only be restorative. We, we think of our prison systems. They should be about restoring somebody to a proper place in society. If we punish a child, it should help them grow. And so our culture is dedicated to this idea that if you can't punish in such a way that it restores the person, you shouldn't punish. And you can see the effects around us in our world. God, God, God I was about to say unfortunately, but it's really not unfortunately, God doesn't live that way. He doesn't respond to his sinful people that way. Instead, as he attacks and 
crushes Nineveh, it's retributive. They are punished simply for their sin. There is no hope for restoration for Nineveh. There is no hope for the restoration of their people and of the empire. It's simply judgment because judgment is due. Now, it's not that there's no purpose for it. Specifically, Nineveh has charmed the nations. Nineveh has, through their wiles, through their export of their culture, they have made it so the nations are enthralled. They don't think they can stand up against Nineveh, so they are going to submit to Nineveh. And God's act of shaming, of judgment, is meant to break that charm. No one will go back to Nineveh and go, you know, they're so just, their culture is just so overwhelming, how could I stand against it? No, God will have completely shamed it, completely made it out to be nothing, held it in contempt so that all the nations can go, we have no reason to fear this anymore. We're not charmed by you anymore. We're not charmed. In our world today, um, we have this growing sense, I don't know if you're probably aware of it, but just urbanization of growing cities. And, and actually, the U.S. isn't even the place with these biggest growing cities. Around the world, cities, massive cities, are, go, are, are becoming the norm. And this is only going to get more. We're only going to have more of these cities. And they bring people together. They bring them together, and you see victimization of people within the city. You see them try to impress their will outside the city. And this will continue to become more and more. But we do have cities in the U.S. We do have cities around us that do the same thing, that they try to export, they try to push this culture forward. And so maybe we just quickly run through a couple Hollywood is probably the first one that comes to mind, that tries to enthrall us, that tries to charm us with its vision of how the world should look. And what do we see coming out of that? What do we see amplified? We see sexual sin. We see violence. We see greed. Maybe we don't think of this as a sin, but we see perfectionism. This idea that we have to perform and we have to make it look good. That will be what wins the day. Our skill is what will give us praise. Performance. We see a city like San Francisco. Again, sexual sin exported. Um, gender confusion. A sense of false justice. Like we know better than God what justice really looks like. And we will tell you and you will submit to that view of injustice or just ideological control. I work in a tech field doing software development, and there are a large number of these bigger tech giants who are in San Francisco. And it comes to the point that it is very hard to work with these people if you don't have that shared vision. And so they try to grab basically all the tech, all the people who are seen as the knowledgeable, the smart, the, the, the people who are going to change the world technologically in the future and convert them to their way of thinking. So we see this export, this amplification of sin. New York, mammon, greed, plain and simple. We talk about the almighty dollar. We talk about it like that for a reason. It's, it's sin exported and amplified. 
or DC, say, do as I do not, do as I say, not as I do. Um, hypocrisy, manipulation of its own people, manipulation of world systems, um, technocracy. We see all these things being amplified, being exported, and say, simply submit. Christian, have a truce with the world because we can promise you security. We can promise you a good, happy life. And God says, all of those are opposed to me. You can't be at a truce with this world and follow me the way I'm calling you to follow me. Rather than focus on individual cities, we might talk just about across the board exports and amplification. Um, the first one um, is just expressive individualism. The idea that life is supposed to be about me. And if I am not telling you who I am, if I'm not expressing everything about what goes on in my head, then I've somehow failed to be me. That's, that's something that our culture is exporting to us and telling us submit to that. And so um, this is maybe a small book plug. You heard about it in our announcements. But um, as, as we enter into July and August, we're going to be going through the book Strange New World, um, how thinkers and activists redefined identity and sparked the sexual revolution. And a large part deals exactly with this, this idea of expressive individualism and how it impacts Christians following Christ. Moving on from expressive individualism, though, we could talk about therapeutic deism. Um, the idea that we can have spirituality on our own terms. Um, that God wants us to be happy here and now, and anything that competes with that is, is evil. We can talk about humanism, the ordering of life around the human being. Our culture talks about humanism as if it's a good thing to have all of life ordered around humans when God pictures a life oriented around him. And then just there's the simple materialism that we go, we, we know so well that money can buy you happiness. Ignore the money really can. So get more. It tells us that our problem is not internal. It's not sin in us, but it's external. If we just had more, if we just had those things that we wanted, if we just had our situations, life would be perfect. We would be secure and happy and joyous. All of these things, the cities, these amplifiers of culture put before us to try to charm us. But there is a contrast. Scripture places this conflict bigger, grander scale. And Nahum envisions something bigger than just Nineveh being judged. We see it in Revelation 17. It says, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, drunk with the blood of the saints. There's a direct trajectory from Assyria, from Nineveh, to Babylon the great. And over against that, God puts the holy city. A completely different culture. A culture of the word, of the Spirit guiding to knowledge of the Word, of the Spirit illuminating the Word, of heavenly worship directed to something outside of ourselves, a culture of sacrifice, of submission, of love, of life and light, 
It's, it's ultimately a culture of mission, to make God known to all. So the challenge is, ultimately, as we look at Nahum and see the destruction of Nineveh, our call is to conform our lives to Christ. I know, it seems a stretch. It is not. We are to bear spiritual fruit in keeping with a heavenwardly directed culture. That's what we're being called to. And ultimately, are, are we going to conform ourselves to the city's image, the culture that's being exported, sent to us, demanded of us, or are we going to conform ourselves to Christ? It's important, again, that as we look at Nahum, we realize that it is written to Judah, to Jerusalem, about Nineveh. So it deals heavily with Nineveh, but it's not written to Nineveh. It's written to Judah. And so the question should keep at the back of our minds and even more forward, what was Judah to do with this? What were they to read of Nineveh shame? And ultimately, God's desired response was that Judah would not align with them. That Judah would actually not be in this state of truce with this world system. Israel was supposed to be a display nation. Um, we read in Exodus 19 that, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were to be a display people. And if they submitted to Assyria, if they tried to draw up truce with them, ultimately they were doomed. But they couldn't accomplish God's mission for them. And so as you see their response over time, if you actually go through Kings, and what you will find is every time they start trying to appease Assyria, they go downhill. There's a direct correlation between their ability to obey and to worship God as he has called them to do it and whether or not they're at peace with Assyria and Nineveh. A direct correlation. Now, similarly, that should cause us to think if that was Israel's mission and this book talks about how they should act in relation to that mission it probably says something similar to us. And 1 Peter um, 2 says this about who we are to be. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So hopefully you can see in just those sh that short little verse that there's a lot of similarity in the mission. Both of us are set aside as a dis display people. The difference is ultimately one of proclamation. Israel was simply called to display. They weren't necessarily called to proclaim. God would make himself known. We're called to proclaim. We're called not just to present an alternative to the city in the way we act, but to proclaim a new way of doing things, a, a 
Lord who is going to rout every um, enemy against him. Ultimately, a thing we can do is look at the church as a micro city itself. We talk about city, whether good, bad, but ultimately the church can do these same things. The church can amplify its culture, and that could be good or bad. We could amplify a culture that says, the Christian life is really about me having a good experience and thinking I'm in God's good graces. Or a church culture can say, partner together and go out to share the gospel. Two different ways of understanding our mission and purpose. And churches have a choice to make, and the people of those churches have a choice to make. Will they see themselves as a city putting those things out, and what will they put out? How will we export culture? Will it be a gospel culture, or will it be a self-pleasing, a self-worshipping culture at truce with the world? So maybe bringing it down. The city is our mission field. It's not just a force opposed to God. It's actually people who we are called to love and care for and call out of sin and call into relationship with Christ. It's a mission field. It's our mission field. Nobody else's. Nobody else is going to win the city to Christ except for Christ as he speaks through us. So, moving from God versus the city, um, the woe there, we, we move on to a series of sort of interlocked taunts. This is basically God saying, you think you're so good, but you're not. I will judge you. And I'll judge you by those very things you thought were your greatest strengths. So we should ask ourselves, um, as we look at this God versus empire, um, what exactly is an empire? How is it different from a city? We talked about the city and how that kind of, you know, that exportation. Um, prior to Assyria's sort of ascendancy, what you pretty much expected is you had cities and they had that small area around them that they dominated. People talk about the Greek civilization and so big, but it's actually just a whole bunch of little cities who are independent of one another, but they share a culture. They, they, they share something, and so this is where we start seeing empire come in. Empire is this sharing of culture beyond the city to where a whole people um, begin to take it on. It's self-reinforcing. Once it gets going, it's hard to stop. And that's exactly, as we've already talked, that, that's exactly what Assyria's cruelty is doing. It's intended as a means to ensure their continued success and survival. And so each of these taunts as they develop is going to attempt to counter that. So we can see as we talk about Assyria's cruelty, we, we first want to look maybe at Israel's destruction, what that did. Um, Israel had a mixed relationship with Assyria. They kept on trying to appease them. They, as we've already kind of talked about, they, they, they tried to appease them. They tried to bring up peace with them. And every time Assyria sort of got interested somewhere else and let Israel alone for a while... Israel would sort of take it back. Okay, fine, now I can be independent again. Rather than maintaining that, that sense of independence all the time, they were sort of double-minded about it. And so Assyria rightly crushed them. And it made sense for Assyria to do so because once Assyria had crushed Israel, what's Judah going to think? What are the other nations, Edom, around 
Israel going to think? Well, that Assyria is pretty, pretty powerful. I don't think I can oppose them. And so this crushing individual nations acts as a wave to expand the empire. For the benefit of the people of that empire, we necessarily need to think of an empire as all that helpful to the people. An empire, basically, in, in Assyria's empire at least, is expanding control without expending care for the people. And so ultimately, when we come to Judah and Jerusalem, the question is, will king people trust God and remain aligned with him rather than Assyria? It's going to be costly for them to do so. Again, Nahum is talking to Assyria, Nineveh, at the top of its power. Not at some weakened point, but at the top. It's ascendancy. And, and God is saying, I need you to start acting and behaving as if I've already conquered them now. Don't wait 20, 30 years from now. I'm ruling. I'm already on the scene. I have promised I will judge them. Your allegiance is to me. Well, beyond Judah and Jerusalem, we could talk about Egypt, um, who has a very mixed history with Assyria as well. Um, you can find a good commentary. I, I don't think we necessarily need to go through all the details, but just to say every time Assyria would get kind of put away, I'm going to deal with Babylon, I'm going to deal with Israel, I'm going to do this other thing, Egypt would kind of rise up and say, I have power, I have authority again, and I'm going to try to fight back against Assyria. It's the other major world power of the time. But ultimately, Assyria is able to repeatedly um, inflict damage on Egypt to sub make, make it go submitted to its will. Um, and so in this first in a series of interlocking taunts, um, Thebes, it, the, one of the capitals of Egypt, is reminded of Assyria's past victory. Um, Nahum's example is not just, see this city, it got destroyed. It is, Assyria, you destroyed this city. And it's not that it was a weak city, it was a powerful city, a well-protected city, a city with many of the same features as Nineveh itself, protected by water, protected by nations who were in, in alliance with it. But ultimately, Assyria was able to destroy Thebes. It was able to take it out, remove its opposition to Assyria's continued advance. And the message to Assyria is, do you think you will fare better? You completely destroyed Thebes. You completely wiped it off the map. And do you think you can escape the same judgment from me? If it was asked to Nineveh in their current moment, they probably would have actually said, yes. I do have the power. There's no one who stands opposed to me. There's no one who has the power or the wherewithal to do anything about it. As to Judah, it's a rhetorical question with the answer, no. Assyria, Nineveh will not fare better. It can't. Because God is sovereign over the nations, his will will be done. It's sovereign over Egypt. Egypt, Thebes, only fell because God allowed it. Not because Assyria was powerful. Assyria will fall because God says so. The Roman Empire, under God's control. 
China in our day, Russia in our day, the United States in our day, under God's control. Every empire will fall before his powerful rule. And reinforcing that God is sovereign over the nations brings us into this second interlocked taunt. And that is that your fortresses are like ripe figs ready to fall in your mouth with the slightest shake of a tree. The first one focused on the, um, the fact that Assyria thought itself unassailable. This one says your military strength is actually completely not real. It's a vapor. It can vanish that quickly. Where you think you're strong, you are not. Um, what, what's pictured is actually fire and locusts. Their military uh, defeat is pictured in these terms of fire and locusts. Now, we, we would call those natural disasters. Um, but Judah, Assyria, they're meant to see this as God at work. It's not the armies. It's not Babylon who will actually do the conquering or its, its friends. But it is ultimately God who is going to be Nineveh, Assyria's defeat. And it is a reversal of expectations of the current realities. Assyria is actually ascendant. Assyria is powerful. They have every reason to boast from a material, from a physical, worldly standpoint. But they have no reason to boast. Um, what we see um, in, in verse 8 and forward, we see these fortre fortresses, these outposts. And you can see this is an element of the empire's advance. As they advance, they conquer kingdoms, they put a fortress here in front. Now they're protected. Somebody has to go through those fortresses to get to them. And so they think militarily they've positioned themselves really, really well. I put these outposts here that will support me militarily and make it so that I don't even have to deal with the threat to me personally. You have to go through these fortresses first. But it turns out they're not prepared. When the time comes, it will be too late for Nineveh to do anything. And, and God even, even sort of mocks them by encouraging them, get water, but the fire is coming. You won't have enough water to care for it, to prepare to, to, to fight back. He says, build bricks. Grab the, grab the brick mold. But he never mentions them actually building any bricks because the defeat will come so swiftly they won't have a chance. The gates are wide open. What, what sense does it make to fortify walls if the gates are open? In verse 15, he moves on to this call for multiplication. He's saying, maybe, maybe, Syria, enough people who are sort of in your pocket, who are beholden to your way of doing things, maybe you'll be protected. But ultimately, he's really saying security is not going to be found in numbers. All those numbers, all those, the, 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 the swarm of locusts, they won't help you. They're going to flee. That, that picture of locusts that we see from verse 15 through about 17, um, there are two things going on. Um, locusts are known for, one, consuming everything that they come across, and two, being transient. So as he first talks about it, he thinks of it as it's Nineveh, it's Assyria that is pictured as the locust. And so you have this vast multitude that is consuming their own empire rather than actually building it and growing it and making sure that it will be sustainable. This large number is actually ensuring its defeat. 
It's consuming the power of Nineveh and Assyria. But as he goes further, he sees this, that, that, that the third interlock taunt, and that is you have increased your merchants and they will abandon you. You think that that's security, diplomacy, economics, you're going to, even if your military was not to be the main thing, that because of the people beholden to your trade, you'll be safe, you'll be secure. But God says they're transient. They will fly away. They won't be loyal to you. This quote really stood out to me. I'm not sure if anybody is familiar with uh, Klaus Switz. Um, I was uh, at one point studying to be in the military, and Klaus Switz is the classic. Um, war is meant to support policy. It's really war is just politics. And this, this quote was, was by one of the commenters on, on Nahum. It says, the focus here is on Assyria's merchants, or else merchants who ply a willing part in Assyrian-controlled trade. Rephrasing the famous aphorism by Karl von Clausewitz, according to which war is mere continuation of politics by other means, we may wonder whether trade is not sometimes experienced by conquered nations as a mere continuation of war by other means. And flipping it around. Um, we often think because what we're engaging in around the world is economic, it's diplomatic, it's raising up democracy or being, we put all these names to it when really we can very much be acting as war, as the aggressor. And that's exactly what is going on with Assyria, whether by military trying to dominate or by economy trying to dominate. They think that they can win security for themselves and God taunts them, it'll be nothing. You think you can keep them submitted and dependent on you, I'm going to make your charms go away. I'm going to make your hope evaporate. And so there's natural application for us. We can think of it in terms of our country. Um, will we fare better? I'm not trying to suggest here. I'm not Nahum. I'm not saying the United States is doomed, so don't read me wrong. But ultimately, will we fare better? Do we think we have a, a kingdom that will stand the test of time, even to the case of Assyria. Assyria lasted an unreasonably long time. We're not, that young, we're not that old, and we already see a number of elements of decay with our society, with our culture, with our nation at large. What looks like the fire and locust to us? Is it a lack of wisdom and fear of the Lord? Is it confusion and division? meant to keep us from actually dealing with our real problems? Is it just distraction? Is it the media? Is it our trust in numbers? Do we trust the fact that you know, we're the exporter of science? That English is the dominant language? Just offhand, there are more Chinese speakers than English speakers. Somehow we think that we have it made because we... Is it the size of our military? Our military spending in this country is ridiculous, and I'm not trying to make political points other than to say we think we have security in those things, and we as the people, as Christians in the nation, sometimes rest sort of secure. I can go sleep at night because I know I am safe, but that safety is supported. Its foundation rests in injustice, in a 
a sense of reality that I can make my own way. I don't need God. I don't need his security. I don't need his rescue. And then our trust could be just in cultural reach, technology, medicine, commerce, globalization. We think these things will make sure that we are secure and safe. When God is saying, those aren't it. Those aren't what you can put your trust in, and they could vanish overnight. That seems very high level, like the nation at large, but we can ask the same questions of ourselves, our personal selves, our church selves. Will we fare better? Will our sin go unpunished? Do we think we can avoid having our sin addressed by God when we are expressive about it? when we do nothing to counter the sin building in our lives. We talked about in Word and Prayer this morning, just the sense of being having our ear trained away from actually obeying God's Word. If we're in that state, maybe we will avoid condemnation on the last day, but do we really think that God will not see and do something about it? Do we think our sin will go unpunished? And so we have to ask ourselves, do we really know Jesus If sin is the dominating force in our lives and we see nothing to tell us otherwise, we have no love for the word, no love for his people, do we know Jesus? Are we new creations or are we ultimately destined for judgment? Or maybe just the simple, do we know more than we practice? Do we think we're better than we are? Is it all really a fleeting dream? Are we hiding secret sin that other people can't see, but we know clearly is there? Or instead, do we not even pay attention to our sin? Do we live a life that's not analyzed? Not even, we don't even give it a thought. We just live life and hope it all works out. Or are we living life where we are analyzing ourselves, but we never let anybody else in? Are you living a life separate from other believers so that no one can call you to account for your sin? God certainly isn't going to, so why should I let anybody else? Do you trust your upbringing, your 401k, your education, your spouse, your friends? Do you trust your own pride as a self-starter? I can make it. I have the power. I have what I need. And God says, ultimately, judgment will come. And so this leads us, self-starting idea, to a serious king and his conflict with God. So this final section, verses 18 through 19, what we see is a, is a dirge, a funeral poem. The king is doomed. His wound is grievous. It's, he can't recover from it. And so we can talk about um, first maybe what a king is. And the world offer, we, we see two different possibilities. We see a, the world offering kings as people in charge, the people who have dominion, the Bible offers a picture of kings where the king is a representative of God himself. He's a, he's a regent. He's somebody who stands in God's place as long as he acts according to God's will. And so the reality, Israel's king is supposed to be a regent. Um, his goal was to protect his people by adhering to God's word and dispensing God's justice. He was supposed to lead in worship. This is what we see in David through the Psalms, through uh, First and uh, Second 
Samuel, we see this idea of David as someone who leads in worship as king. The king was supposed to lead by example. We have examples who dealt with Assyria's onslaught, like Hezekiah and Josiah, who were faithful in the face of Assyria because they said, God actually, owe, we, we owe him our allegiance. Assyria won't give us safety. So Jesus even tells us that we, our leaders, are not supposed to be like that. They're not supposed to be these dom, domineering people. They are people who lead by example, who lead out of service, who lead out of love. And on the other side of this, we do see Assyrian kings. Assyrian kings didn't think that they were the representative of deity. They didn't. It wasn't, I represent this God, and therefore I'm acting like the God. Rather, the Assyrian king thought, I'm the one with the power. The king has authorized it, but it's me. When Assyria's king comes up against Jerusalem, comes up against Judah, he's not saying, my gods will defeat you. He's saying, I will defeat you. And I'll add you to the other gods who are in my train. The Assyrian king thinks he's in charge, not his gods. His gods are supporting him, but he's in charge. And that's why he earns this judgment from God, because he thinks he's the one who is in control. But in verse 18, we see how weak he really is. His governors, his direct reports are asleep at the wheel. Now, it's unclear in that passage whether he's talking, just not paying attention, or maybe dead. Maybe what he's talking about there is actually that they're already dead. Either way, the point is, this nation is not being governed well. The king is not accomplishing his mission. He's supposed to be the protector. He's supposed to ensure the safety of Nineveh, and he's not doing it. His governors are asleep or dead. His nobles are asleep or dead. The people are scattered on the mountains, fleeing with none to gather them. And all throughout it, the emphasis is not on the governors and the nobles and the people. It's on the king. Every line is you. Every line is your. It is your responsibility. It was your place to serve your people and to do it well, and you've completely failed. And because of that, your wound is incurable. Your hurt is too great. None can ease it. Verse 19, it's grievous. It will lead to death. Death is imminent, and it will lead to death for the empire. You won't be remembered as a great king. You will be remembered for causing the end of your empire, if your empire is even mentioned. The truth of history is that Nineveh went for the longest time, it was no longer a thing. It wasn't even ruins. It was simply covered up by dirt. Empires, only a century later, or nations, armies come walking over it, don't even realize they're passing Nineveh. So thoroughly is it destroyed because of the king's failure. And not only is it going to be the death for the king, but ultimately it will result in rejoicing at this knowledge. Nobody grieves him. Nobody is sitting there going, oh man, Assyria's downfall, that's really bad for my business. Nope, the merchants are gone. 
And all that can be heard is the clapping of people glad that Assyria and Nineveh and its king are gone. It's the joy of people who have been redeemed, who have been released from oppression. Again, it looks forward. It's not just about Assyria. It's to our ultimate redemption from sin and death. All those things that are evil that oppose God. So as we finish up the book of Nahum, um, we find Jonah and Nahum tied together, right? Jonah and Nahum are both about Assyria, both have different perspectives of what God is doing at a moment in time, and both are unique for ending their books, their prophetic messages, with rhetorical questions. This is not common to end with a rhetorical question. It's usually not a very good uh, policy to end something with a rhetorical question, leaving people hanging, but that's what exactly they do. Jonah says, should I not pity Nineveh? As if God saying to man, are you right to be angry when I show mercy? Because I have the right to show mercy. It's in my power, it's in my authority, it's in my wherewithal to show mercy where I will. But in Nahum, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil, God says to man, judgment is warranted. We can all agree with that, right? There's nobody who would not agree that I was absolutely right to judge this people for their sin. And again, Nahum still points to an even greater coming day of judgment. It is an end with Assyria. Assyria's king was temporary, but there is coming a kingdom without end. Daniel 7, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Says Jesus to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age." This is the king. This is the one we owe allegiance to. This is the one who will guarantee security, his authority. And we're his people, and we should be about his business. Not at truce with this world, not engaging in our own business, but his business, in his power, in his authority, in his healing. We cannot do it on our own except through him actively changing our hearts and empowering us for the mission as a body. That's Nahum. And so we might want to ask where we go from here. Um, and the first thing is we go into the city. We proclaim a coming king. We go into the city, the place where we live, where we work, where we meet, where we eat. And we proclaim with certainty God is coming in judgment on all of our sin. So come to him. He invites you to come to him. And he invites us to life now, not just a future of bliss, but life now lived in his presence. He says, make it a daily mission to seek the lost, to share the gospel, to comfort the hurting, the broken, the oppressed. It's our mission now. And so we, we're, only, we're the only ones who are going to do that mission. He's not leaving it up to the United States. He's not leaving, leaving it up to China. He's, he's leaving it up to his church, 
in every place where it is found. And so that's the second thing. Go into the world together. Actually be the church. The church is intended by its very inauguration to be countercultural. That does not mean opposed to culture. Okay? It's not a resounding no to culture. But it is culture filtered through scripture and prayer. Filtered through God's spirit. And so we have to ask, you know, what are we filling our minds with? Are our ears tuned to hear God's word or are they tuned to hear something we don't want our children to listen to? It's not about legalism, it's about stewardship. It is about stewarding the life that God has given us. It's about asking, what's on repeat? What's the thing that we keep on putting into our brain? What's the earworm? Is it God's word? Is it Christ ascendant? Or is it Nicki Minaj? What is it? What's it going to be? What are we going to amplify? We are intended to live intensely connected lives with each other that point to a future reality of heavenly community. That's what we're intended to amplify. It's not monastic. It's not like we're supposed to separate ourselves from the world and live completely separate from that world. But we're supposed to be consecrated. We step into the city as a holy people because God has made us a holy people. It's holy in the regular. And so counterculture, as we did in the first section, it's counter-sin. Our lives should look different. Individually, our lives should look different as a community. There's no time for silence and inaction. Ultimately, we have to share what we know. We have a God that really loves he doesn't just affirm us and leave us to be. He loves us and desires perfection and holiness for us. And Jesus has purchased that holiness. We know that. We have to share that. We have a God who's just and he will defend the hurting, the oppressed. We can't offer up some other definition for justice and think God will not still defend the oppressed. God is powerful and empowers us through his spirit to live in unity. So do our lives look like unity or do they look like, well, I really don't want those people to have any say in my life. It's a life of building one another up through the spirit. It's a word-based life where the spirit guides us into Jesus's word. So read it, study it together, memorize it, meditate on it. You cannot hope to do this life to Call no truce with the world if you will not also at the same time run after him through the word. And then God is listening to our prayers. And so pray. Are we praying? Are we praying for the lives who are trapped in the city, trapped in this culture that is opposed to God and ultimately desires their death? And he knows you. He knows your sin. And he still invites you to come. So you should be inviting others to come as well. Maybe finally, await the king who will avenge every hurt, every trial. He will make every sacrifice worthwhile. Count the cost. The joys of heaven are worth it. Take up your cross. 
Live in light of Jesus, gentle and lowly. He will keep his promises. He will be just. And then follow him. We're not the trailblazers. We don't have to think we're engaging culture on our own. Jesus is the trailblazer. He's responsible. Specifically for those of us who lead, for elders, for future elders, for husbands, for parents, lead as an emissary of Christ. Not as the king of Nineveh. Not as a person dedicated to your own pleasure, your own authority, your own praise. But lead as one under Christ. For deacons, serve well. See the body that you're responsible to serve. Don't sleep away your service. Don't flee when it's time to stand. If you called to serve, serve well under Christ, the great servant. And then for all, judgment is coming. Judgment belongs to the Lord, and Jesus is the only refuge. That's name's message. Jesus is the only refuge. May we be found faithful. Let's pray. Father, would you empower us to follow you, to spurn sin in our lives, to love one another well. God, to give no truce with this world, but to cling tightly to you. God, will we be an image of you, light on hill, um, to proclaim your glory. May we make it known, God. May that be the defining purpose for our life. As we engage in so many things that you will bless, may they all center around making you known, your glory, your power, your love. God, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.